Hello, Amanda Smith here. Thanks so much for joining me on yet another podcast. I'm very grateful to have you here with me. This episode was actually recorded a couple weeks back on June 3rd with ESPN host, reporter, and sports Emmy winner, Jen Latta. We talk about authenticity, making a name for herself at ESPN, and so much more. I hope you enjoy. here with Jen Latta. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It's such a treat to get to talk with you. It is such a treat to talk to someone who pronounces my last name correctly. I always laugh because it's only four letters, but the number of pronunciations that I've heard in my career would shock you. Uh, usually I get, I get Lada. Um, Lada is another one that I get a lot, but it is Latta. So thank you so much. Lada, I will not forget that. I practiced it many a times. Did so what I part. tell everyone, Amanda, <laughs> is if you lived in Boston and you were climbing a... Okay. You'd be climbing I'm a ladder. Climbing a ladder. <laughs> I, love- <laughs> I love it. Oh, and I always love when I have a fellow Illinois friend on the show, and usually when this happens, I like to ask what your kind of pizza preference is, and if you're a fan of deep dish. Uh, I am a fan of deep dish pizza, but but, but like tempered, right? It's like not yeah. my go-to pizza, but right. I think like there's so many good options. Uh, I recently moved to Wisconsin because my husband works for the Bucks and the Brewers. Trader. And they no, just, just put in, right? They just put a Lou Malnati's in right around um, – down the street from our house so that's been a nice treat here in Wisconsin but like I'm a big fan of like a hand-tossed pizza I don't really love the like crispy thin cracker crust I'll do that every once in a while my favorite pizza is like a wood burning oven pizza you know where they like slide it in with the big long paddles and then they slide it out it's got a little bit of like the burn on it from the oven stuff those are my favorite pizzas and of course I'm such a fan of build your own's Right, where you're totally. like, I'll throw some artichokes on there and some olives on there and some feta cheese. So that's my go to pizza when I'm at a spot. I look and see if they have like a Greek pizza. Um, but we'll do deep dish absolutely, um, you know, in honor of my home city. It's funny because I feel like when I've had people on the show that maybe aren't from Illinois, but they've spent time in Chicago or the Chicago area, they just think deep dish is lasagna and not a fan. And I'm like, I'll scrape that sauce off all day. <laughs> right. And you have to enjoy that like crust, right? Yes. That like cornmeal crust. It's definitely an acquired taste, but I love that like it's so well known, like almost internationally. Like people know when you're talking about Chicago deep dish, like what you're referring to. Completely. Uh, well, as we talk about Chicago, you spent some time working in Chicago at a regional sports network. You've worked in local TV. What are some of the maybe pivotal moments you think of throughout your career when you reflect on now ultimately ending up at a national network with ESPN? Gosh, you know what? You think about pivotal moments and you probably think of like the biggest games, right? So like getting to cover um, teams that are headed to the Super Bowl. I covered the Packers uh, here in Wisconsin years ago when they went to the Super Bowl in 2010 slash 11. I think the most pivotal for this for this job for me was getting to cover teams 
on a daily basis, right? It's so unique to like be entrenched with certain teams and to um, develop relationships with players that go beyond just, hey, how's it going? Can I get a quote from you? Like, you know, getting to know people on a personal level and then how you navigate getting to know guys on a personal level and then also having to do your job and sometimes ask them tough probing questions, sometimes criticize their performances. Um, I've always said that it's really easy to be a national pundit who has never walked into a locker room, who has never stood in front of a general manager as they are you know, about to be fired, when everyone in the room knows that they're going to be fired because they have underperformed and still be able to have a respectable conversation. It's really easy to like crush people if you've never met them, if you've never interacted with them, and if you've never seen the work that goes in to doing that job. So being able to cover a team like the Chicago Bears when I was in Chicago, like the White Sox when I was in Chicago, getting to know all of the players, yes, but also all of the people that make the machine move and run is really invaluable. And I think you have such a, you have such a deeper appreciation for how hard it is to win in professional sports when you're around a team like that. So like talk about pivotal moments. I wish I could say like there's one game where I was like, oh, this is going to make such a difference in my career. But ultimately it has been when I've been entrenched with teams and have really seen it from the inside out. And you just have a different perspective when you cover them. You're maybe a little more empathetic to the difficulties of building a uh, successful program and team. How have you been able to build those relationships and gain the trust from players and people in the front offices? So this always goes back to what I say is my number one with a bullet, asterisk, circle it, (laughs) highlight it, rule of this business, and that's authenticity. Mm -hmm. I think if you are a real person who isn't trying to be phony or is it trying to be something you're not, if you just have genuine conversations like a normal human being, the biggest mistake people make is assuming that these athletes are somehow different than us beyond their athletic prowess, right? They are extraordinarily good at playing sports, whatever that sport may be. But beyond that, we, and maybe financially, we all have the same issues. Like they're trying to figure out how to talk to their kids about stuff that's going on in our world right now. They're trying to figure out how to navigate social distancing. They're trying to figure out like my mom's getting older and should we put her in a nursing home or should we bring her into our house? How does that affect my family? Like you don't think about your favorite sports players having those same type of issues or those same types of stressors. So I always tell people like, When you interact with these athletes or even these coaches or GMs, which is actually a little bit harder because oftentimes they're a little bit older than you. You feel like you're inexperienced. You're like, hey, sorry, can I bother you for a minute? (laughs) Like, I feel like if you just treat people as though you're all on equal footing and an equal playing field, most players respond to that really well because you're seeing them as another person and not some like, we're not worthy, you know, Wayne's World, Illinois reference there for you, <laughs> Wayne's World scene, you know, you're just kind of, I'm, I'm a person, you're a person, you happen to play sports, I happen to cover sports, let's find some common ground, and then build that respectability and that credibility. That's what's worked for me. Is that what has drawn you to storytelling and working on features? Uh, I think so. I think it's the humanity of it. I think it's people being people and us bringing their stories to your living rooms. Um, Not everyone can relate to a guy who hits, you know, over 300. Not everyone can relate to, you know, a quarterback with a, you know, 70 
completion percentage. Not everyone can relate to these guys who are just exceptional at what they do, but everyone can relate to my mom was diagnosed with MS and we are trying to figure out how to navigate the final days of her life. Um, my son died at a young age. He, we decided he should be an organ donor. His heart went to the heart of another child. Our two families have become incredibly close and we consider them family. Those are stories that like touch people in a different place. And yes, it happens to be through the prism of sports because that's what they do. But at the end of the day, I love being able to share those um, human moments with an audience. And, and to be honest, look, this is a little selfish, but it reaches a larger audience, right? Like I talk about people who aren't sports fans and wouldn't be able to tell you who the teams, you know, in the NFC North are, but they can tell you, you know, a story about X athlete because they caught it on Facebook or they caught it on social media and, you know, their friend sent it to them, you know, Hey, you got to check this out. And, and I think that's what helps build up like the sports community that we're in. Right. Not everybody plays fantasy every single weekend, but somebody will relate to a story like that and then pass it on to, to other people that they care about. Yeah. Well, I was reading a Chicago Tribune article about you, and it talked about how when you were working in local TV, you were simultaneously waitressing to be able to supplement your income. For me, when I read that, that's very personal because right now pretty much all the opportunities I have are freelance, and so I do waitress on the side to, to keep the lights on, I always say. Um, for you, where did that sort of don't give up, I'm going to figure out how to do this mentality stem from? It's funny now I'm almost 40 years old where I have like a totally different perspective than I would have earlier. Um, it's honestly, I'm learning that it's how I've always been. So my dad used to tell me stories about when I was a kid and I would come across some challenge. And these are the examples he uses. So bear with me because they're a little <laughs> bit silly, but like he tells me stories about how all the girls in my class were learning how to hula hoop. And I went over to a girlfriend's house and the girls were all hula hooping and I didn't know how to hula hoop. So he went out and bought me one. And he talks about how I st stood in the driveway teaching myself how to hula hoop until it was dark outside and they had to like bring me inside. But the next time I went over to that little girl's house, guess what? I knew how to hula hoop. Um, there's a famous story he tells sometimes other family members about how there is that carnival game that has the ladder attached at either end it kind of goes oh, up yeah, on yeah. an incline mm -hmm. and it spins right because it's only attached in two spots like at the top and at the bottom and how we were at a carnival once when I was a kid and I asked him if I could play it and of course the first time I got thrown off and I asked him if I could play it again so he ponied up another dollar and of course I got thrown off and he says I must have done it 20 times and at that point he saw the determination in me right he saw the persistence and so he felt it was his job to cultivate that to like feed it so he just kept dollar, 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 dollar. <laughs> and finally, you know, after, you know, a dozen or two dozen times, I made it to the top, rang that bell. And I still remember I got a red and black stuffed raccoon, which isn't even like, it wasn't even like a, a good like a franchise cartoon. It was just like a rando. And, uh, but, um, <laughs> you know, he always says that was another example of just like knowing that I was that type of persistence. So when I got into the broadcasting business and I realized that my salary was not sufficient to, like you said, keep the lights on to make ends meet. It was never an option of walking away. It was always, what do I need to do to make this work? And there was a little bit of like, um, 
I don't want to say embarrassment. I was never embarrassed, but I certainly would have conversations with people like, oh, I work in television, you know, and I'd be at the, totally. at the restaurant and they'd kind of like give you that look like, hmm, it's weird. But I think that just goes to the ignorance of the public when it comes to like local television and salaries and income and things like that. So, um, look, being in the service industry, as you know, requires a lot of people skills. It requires uh, presenting yourself even for a few moments as you're saying, my name is Jen, I'll be your server this evening. These are our specials. What can I get you to drink? Um, and you're trying to quickly develop a rapport with people who you're only going to be spending maybe 45 minutes to a couple hours with. Um, but those are lessons because sometimes that's what it is in broadcasting as well. Sometimes when you go into a clubhouse or a locker room, you only get a few minutes with somebody and how quickly can you develop a rapport? How quickly can you put your best foot forward? And if you don't, how quickly can you recover from it, right? Because in the service industry, your tips and your bottom line depend on you know, having a good experience with those people. So you can't really be like, I'm having a crappy day. No, if you have a crappy day, you're going to have crappy tips, right? And mm -hmm. then you might not be able to pay that electric bill or that car payment or that cell phone bill. So I think it's all of that has contributed um, to me having success in this business. And I feel like that's the part that you don't always see on social media or you look at people that you aspire to be in the position that they are now. You don't always know those stories. So I always think it's important to try to, to, try to share them. I was also reading that early on in your career when you were working at ESPN, you may have felt like you were failing. In moments that could maybe be discouraging, what kept you encouraged? That was the most difficult point in my career. Um, probably because of the expectation of greatness and of grandeur, right? You're at ESPN, you feel like I have made it, I have figured this out, I showed them, you know, all the people who didn't think that you would make it. And then it was like, like right away. Um, and so I think that is part of the reason it was so traumatizing and so difficult was, and I also know how much work I was putting in to be good at something that I wasn't really, um, I didn't really have a lot of experience in. So I was hired to do a certain show and that show disappeared very quickly. And then they put me in a different space, but I was kind of told like, Hey, it's going to be this way. And you're gonna be able to do these, this type of thing. And that never happened. And so you're trying to very quickly turn and, you know, recalibrate and, and figure out how you can make it work. And I know that I was working my tail off. I was waking up very early to prep for these shows and I was consuming and consuming and consuming, but it just wasn't something that I had a lot of experience in. I had always been a local broadcaster, a local reporter and an anchor. And so um, doing radio on the national stage was, was something that was brand new to me. And I really didn't feel like I was given a lot of leeway to fail or to struggle. There was an expectation of, well, what do you mean this is hard? Like, what do you mean you can't do this? What do you mean you're, you're struggling with this? So I could go on and on about like how demoralizing that situation was. But at the end of the day, what I took from it was, I wasn't going to let it beat me. I wasn't going to let that be the story of my ESPN career. I wasn't going to let them, you know, get away with don't call us, we'll call you type of thing. So it was, again, kind of picking yourself up by the bootstraps, you know, to use the old cliche and okay, this space didn't work for me. I think we all agree on that. What space can I make a mark in? What space can I contribute to? 
it's a huge thing. How can I contribute to what ESPN is trying to accomplish, right? Making it more about what the company's trying to do than what I'm trying to do. If the two things line up, fantastic. Um, and at the time there was movement on the television side. Uh, I remember Carrie Champion had moved um, on to SportsCenter and that opened something up for, for like Tony Collins and that moved Tony Collins off of the digital space. And so just those dominoes meant that there was an opening in our digital space. And I thought, well, digital space is the same as television. It's just being broadcast in a different medium, a different platform. So I asked them if I could start doing digital hits. And because they had an opening, they were like, yeah, absolutely. And so I was able to do that. And then I think people started to realize like, oh, this person has television experience, right? Because like ESPN is a huge company. And if you think that the people in the radio department know exactly what's going on in the TV department and the digital space and the dot com and the, you know, magazine and all of these other things, you're mistaken. So it was really about advocating for myself. It was reaching out to people who had a need, demonstrating that I could fill that need. And then you become reliable. When you're reliable, then people will go back to you over and over again, right? Because you make them look good, right? It's a very simple formula if you really think about it, right? Like people align themselves with people who make them look good, who's not going to get them called into the principal's office. So I think that's what started and put me on the path of I'm going to be doing more television at ESPN. And that's where I've been ever since. Is there anyone that early on in your career or even now you looked to or look to currently as a sort of mentor? You know, I get asked this question a lot and I'm a little bit embarrassed to say that I don't have specific mentors. Um, I used to say like, well, I feel like you can learn something from everyone that you interact with. And I still think that that's very true. Um, I think also it goes back to, I didn't feel like early on I could ask for help. I thought that that was a sign of weakness. I thought that was a sign of, wow, why am I going to tell someone the things that I don't know? Again, with age comes wisdom. And you realize that, you know, that is not always the case. Certainly there are people out there who are interested in helping, who want to be advocates, and who want to be mentors. So I've gotten better about leaning on friends, leaning on colleagues, when I feel like, ah, I don't know exactly how to handle this. I have people who I feel very comfortable reaching out to and saying, listen, this is the situation. Here's the reality. What do you think I should do? And then, you know, bouncing ideas. And I feel like the good thing about ESPN is we have a very strong um, core of females who we all kind of lean on each other in those spaces. So I'll get a text message from a girlfriend, try to walk her through a situation. I'll send text messages to girlfriends. Sometimes we hop on a call. Um, that's probably been the, I don't want to say biggest surprise, but it's definitely been a pleasant surprise of my time at ESPN because I think you're under this impression that it's going to be super cutthroat, super competitive, that anything that this woman is doing, it means that I'm not doing it. But in my experience, most of the women are actually genuinely happy for each other when they get an opportunity and they knock it out of the park because that means that more opportunities will be given to women in the future. So um, I, again, I wish I could give you specific names of people that I'm like, oh yes, I grew up watching Hannah Storm and you know these types, it just wasn't the case for me. Um, but I think I've done a good job of, of changing directions as I've gotten older and leaning on people more when I find myself in a, in uh, challenging situations. Now here you are giving your time to us. <laughs> oh yeah, well, what goes around comes around, right? <laughs> when you first got into the industry, kind of when you look back on that and then 
where media is now, what are maybe some of the most significant changes that you've seen through the course of your career? I'm sure that you get this a lot, but it's got to be the, the influx of social media. It's got to be how it's affected coverage. It's got to be how it's affected the, the 24-hour news cycle. It's got to be also how it's affected people putting themselves out there. It's changed how people are cultivating their image beyond those other things that I mentioned, right? Um, it's, you see people aligning themselves with certain brands or certain causes um, and I think, again, going back to authenticity, I think you have to figure out really early on, like who you are with some movement, right? With some give on either side, you, know, you can certainly change when educated about certain things, but who you are, what your morals are, things you will not be moved from, right? I call them your tent poles. You figure out what those tent poles are and then cling tightly to them because I feel like this industry can try to really mess with people right and if you're if you don't have a like strong foothold in your integrity i think that you'll be tested pretty regularly in this business so i think social media is another example of that right like i'm absolutely interested in having a conversation if i get the impression that someone is interested in teaching or learning in a pleasant you know kind of like mutually beneficial sort of way but if, if it's name calling, if it's bullying, if somebody's just getting their kicks out of kicking you, I really have no tolerance for that, right? I think the mute button is huge. I think the block button is huge. I don't have to spend my 24 hours in this day at all interacting with someone that I don't want to. So I think the, the thought process is often, well, I'm on social media. I should engage. I should interact. Hey, do what works for you. But by no means do you have to at all. <laughs> You know, for people that see you and listen to you and want to be in the positions that you're in someday, what would you tell them? I think that people don't realize how easy it is to practice storytelling. It's something that I tell my 11-year-old son. He watched a story on ESPN last night on Armando Galarraga. It was the 10th anniversary of the blown call, Jim Joy's perfect game. Um, and I had him watch it. And then I said, okay, tell me what you watched, right? And he was like, this pitcher, he had a perfect game, and the umpire. And I was like, what was the pitcher's name? And he was like, Gala, you know? And so I'm having him like go over the details. People who are interested in being storytellers, which ultimately is what sports casting is, right? Whether you're a play-by-play -play person, whether you're an um, analyst, if you're a reporter like me, if you're a features reporter like me, even if you're on Sports Center, right? Everything is telling a story varying lengths, right? We have different uh, TRTs, total run times for an E60 story versus a game day story versus a sports center story, et cetera. Um, but I think that if you practice storytelling as often as possible, you'll only get better at it. So if you're out with your friends and something happens to you earlier in the day, practicing how you tell that story that captivates your audience, that keeps them entertained, that has a good payoff at the end, all of those types of things. Um, I also tell people that like use the technology that we have now. Um, I never had a cell phone when I was in college, like maybe senior year, but like certainly couldn't tape video, right? You couldn't record video on it. So if you're watching a game and something strikes you, pull out your phone, record yourself doing what you think would be like a 30 second wrap up of the game. You know, you just sat and watched 
the the Packers game, for instance, here in Wisconsin. Well, what would you do? You know, we have to do a hit right away on the news. Like, what are the storylines? What were the bullet points? What were the main takeaways from that game? And practice doing that. No one ever has to see it, ever. But you can watch it and you can say, ooh, I'd like to do that differently or I'd like to do that better. Or you can send it to a mentor or somebody in the industry and say, I did this. What do you think? Can you offer me any advice on it? Like those types of um those types of technology advances make a huge difference because when I was in school, I had to set up a tripod and tape these things on a, on a VHS tape. And then you're like rewinding it and watching it through the viewfinder and you can't, it's all black and white and you can't really hear it. And you're just hoping it was good. You know, like you have the instant feedback right away now. So those, that's what I tell everybody is practice your storytelling as often as possible, right? Even if it's in just the notes or Google docs on your phone, um, and again, no one has to see any of the stuff. Like, that's the thing. I think we get so petrified of judgment that it keeps us from practicing. But if you think about the fact that only you really have to see it and know that you did it, the biggest key to success in this industry beyond, you know, being talented, beyond working hard, beyond having opportunity and doors open for you is reps. The more repetition, the more times you try something, the more times you do something, the easier it becomes, the better you get at it. So that's what I tell people. You got a head start in getting those reps way before I ever could. This is a PSA to all my friends listening that try to tell me stories and leave out all the details. And I'm like, <laughs> now I have to ask all these follow-up questions. Little journalist coming up. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. The reporter and you can't can't right. let it rest. I'm like, no, I need the full play-by-play. Like, how did this happen? When did it happen? Who did like I hello? But I think you make a really good point there because the human brain, whether we realize it or not, sees those holes, right? especially the female brain. Let's be honest, right? If you've ever had a boyfriend or a significant other try to sell you a load of BS and your brain like has red alarms going off when you're like, wait, 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 wait. Thought you were at the bar until 1130. Mm -hmm. Oh, but your Uber receipt said that you were, you know, picked up at 115. What happened? You know what I mean? Like we've all been there, right? (laughs) I love it. Oh, you guys, we're going to play a quick round of true or false with Jen. So don't go anywhere. Stick around. Welcome back inside How She Did It. Amanda Smith still here with Jen Latta. She has not left yet. And we are going to play a little round of true or false. So I've just got some statements here. And then you'll just tell me true or false. These are things that I think that I've found on the internet about you, but we're going to get you to tell me if they're correct. Okay, so you've run four Chicago marathons. That is true. Think now. I have to count. Um, <laughs> 2010 for sure. They all sort of run together. Um, four sounds correct. Uh, the last one I did, I was pregnant with my daughter Layla. She is two, almost two and a half now. Um, I was five months pregnant with her, so I went very, very, very slowly. Um, and then since then, I've done the New York City Marathon. So I believe I've done five altogether. Four of which have been. Chicago true okay amazing and who Matt like who cares how slow you went you still did it I know it was crazy though (laughs) (laughs) okay um you can say the alphabet backwards 
True, I can. Would you like to hear me say the alphabet backwards, Amanda? It's like you knew my follow-up. Yes, there's your brain <laughs> filling in those holes. <laughs> okay, so this is this. Uh, let me first do it, and then I'll explain. Uh, the alphabet backwards is Z-Y-X-W-V-U-T-S-R-Q-P-O-N-M-L-K-J-I-H-G-F-E-D-C-B-A. So when I was younger... <laughs> right? It's such a weird talent. That's amazing. When I was younger, I thought that if you got pulled over, that saying the alphabet backwards was a sobriety test. <laughs> and so me being like this, like, I'll show them. <laughs> I taught myself how to say the alphabet backwards, which of course, like, totally ignores the larger issue, which is please don't drive drunk. This is not an endorsement for drunk driving. This is not saying here's how you should beat the police officers or beat the system. This is me simply saying that I thought I was a smart ass kid who would know how to say the alphabet backwards if in fact that's what the police officers would ask me. So much like my hula hooping story and much like my ladder at the carnival story, I sat down one day and taught myself how to say the alphabet backwards. And I figured if I taught it the way that you do the alphabet forwards, right, which is to have A, B, C, D, E, F, G, blah, blah, blah. You've got like a rhythm to it, right? Yeah. Um, if I did that backwards, that I, and I have, I've never forgotten it. It's, and I, I tell people I can do it very quickly, which is Z-Y-X-W-V-U-T-S-I-K-P-O-N-M-L-K-J-I-H-G-F-E-D-C-B-A. What? <laughs> what? That's and now you have like the most amazing fun fact that you can always use for like any icebreaker, right? Or like or getting drinks at the bar. Exactly. Don't, right. Don't, hashtag don't drink and drive. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh gosh. Okay. You're a Cubs fan. True. Okay. Whew. He worried me for a sec. I felt like we were building a friendship. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. No. A big Cubs fan. I was actually at the World Series game seven game in uh, Cleveland with my family. Oh my we gosh. spontaneously, we had gone to game one. We drove from Connecticut to Cleveland to go to game one, not the outcome that we wanted. But of course I tell people that if they had won game one, then we might not have been in the situation we were in for game seven, which was just historically epic, uh, the rain delay and everything. And, um, you know, we were there when they won and it was just kind of the best moment of my sports life. Yeah. I remember watching that on television and just thinking like, the curse is real. Like there was a point where I was like, it's real. And this is, it's not going to happen. And then, right. You know, just celebrations everywhere. <laughs> you like cats? Mm -mm. Oh, no, I'm not a cat fan. Like, <laughs> um, we had cats when I was, when I was a kid, my mom's a big cat fan. My sister's a big fan of cats. I have two dogs. So my dog's name is Wrigley. Wrigley is 15 years old um, and he just went to the doctor the other day and they were like, he's really great. Like no heart <laughs> issues, no, like no blood issues, no nothing. They're like, he could live for a bit longer. So that was really great news. And then we have a, uh, another dog, a King Charles Cavalier, who is named Max. So we have two dogs here in the house. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Okay. Last one. You used to play basketball? Oh my gosh. Such a long time ago, like such a long time ago when I was um, in fifth grade, I played basketball um, and we played. So I always tell people that my parents were kind of that generation of parents where we were just on the cusp of organized sports. So I had a few friends my age who played softball, who played organized basketball, but we just like played in the yard. 
I know that like takes like some credibility, you know, hits, but like, that's what we did. You were outside every day and you were playing pickup games in the driveway or you were playing running bases in the yard or you were playing adventure, you know, on the like deserted island across the creek from your house. Like that's what we did. And so uh, I did play basketball. I actually was a free throw shooting champ for like our district at one point, which again, it doesn't make you a great basketball player just because you can shoot free throws, but still. Um, and I had girlfriends and I that would play, you know, basketball in the driveway and in the yard. I do remember vividly, like you talk about things that like stick with you. <laughs> when I was in fifth grade, I remember not playing in a game and being kind of down at the end of the bench and like feeling that the like the emotions were starting to overwhelm me because I hadn't been put in yet and like didn't know how to like let my coach know like hey I haven't played yet right um and when I finally went over to her I had tears running down my face and she was like I had no idea she's like you're so little down there I didn't even see you which of course which of course I think like lends itself to how good I was at that point. Because if I was like one of the best players on the team, you can damn well be sure I would have been I in the game. I forgot you're right? here. So like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. She was like, I didn't even see you down there. Um, so that was a, a little bit of a traumatic moment for sure. Um, and that was kind of the end of my playing days. I still would play pickup in the driveway. I play horse and pig out with my son and my husband in the driveway. And we are, you know, just getting our two-year-old to kind of shoot hoops a little bit. So um, it's definitely something I appreciate. But I don't know. This is kind of like one of those true-ish, false-ish, right? Like, what? have I played basketball? Absolutely, I have. Do what I consider myself good at it? Not really. <laughs> yeah, but you need to add free throw shooting champ to all of your bios. Every That's, really That's how I should have read this. Like, Jen Latta, free throw shooting champ, also works for ESPN. That's a thing, too. But <laughs> but you can imagine now, Amanda, now that we've had this conversation, like, you can see me, right? Like, standing out in my driveway, shooting, yeah. getting the rebound, going back to the free throw line, shooting again, like, for hours on end. And that is probably why I had success as a free throw shooting champ. <laughs> I'm not challenging you to any contest now because I know you're going to go out in your driveway and like practice for three hours while I'm inside. That's literally, that has literally been a key to my success. I'm always prepared. Yeah. You know, like if I know I have an assignment, for example, I was supposed to be the host of the Spelling Bee this year. Um, ESPN teams okay, up with yeah. scripts every year for the national spelling bee. And I was supposed to host our coverage from Washington, DC. And I was so excited about it, but you know that I was like watching old spelling bees. I had watched documentaries <laughs> on the spelling bee. I was like looking at the, I had the lists of the words, the one B, two B, three B championship words, like all of it. Cause like, I never want to be in a position where I'm not prepared for whatever might be thrown my way. Um, and then of course the spelling bee got canceled because of COVID-19 and, um, social distancing. And, um, I'm just hopeful that ESPN will consider me a uh, good option for next year. There's the plug. And when in doubt, just say the alphabet backwards. You've always got that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. We just had a couple great fan questions for you before you leave us. Oh, so sad. So Tim Rushi would like to know, what do you enjoy most about storytelling? We talked about this a little bit, but maybe you can just expand. Um, it's probably the permanency of it. So when you compare storytelling, like at ESPN or any other outlet, to your run-of-the-mill highlights, 
um, even analysis, which, you know, can be long lasting, but oftentimes changes by the game. Um, I feel like there is a, a permanency to what you're doing and a story that you told 10 years ago could still have an impact on a new audience. Um, the best example, in my opinion, of storytelling at ESPN, and I don't think you'll get a lot of pushback on this, is um, when my colleague Tom Rinaldi and Drew Gallagher did The Man in the Red Bandana, which was um, just an incredible story um, about a young man who saved people in his building on 9-11. And they run it every year on September 11th at ESPN. And you want to know something? No one ever says, oh, I've seen this story before. Oh, I can't believe they're running this story again. Oh, I don't need to see this again. Every time it airs, it has an impact on a larger audience. And so that is probably what I appreciate most about it. Um, I do enjoy the relationships that I develop with people who have been kind enough to open their homes and open their hearts to me with their stories. Um, I've said for a long time now, they're not my stories. You know, I may take pride in how the story comes together. And, you know, the, the writing that I sometimes contribute or just the flow that I can contribute. But at the end of the day, these are um, these subject stories. And the best thing that I can do is treat their stories with empathy and kindness and compassion and, and fairness. And so that's kind of always my goal when I go into a family's home, when I know that I'm going to pick at their pain points, right, pick at their scars, that um, we try to do it as kindly and as empathetically as possible. And to kind of build off of this, Solly Lowe says, how do you come up with the unique angles you get for your features? Yeah, I think try, I try not to overthink it. Um, I think sometimes the simplest is the best way. Um, if you have a little niche or a cool element, sometimes it's good to weave that in there. There are certainly storytellers who are much better at it than I am, right? They're able to find like a hook and then like play off that hook throughout a story. Um, what works for me is just, again, just kind of being as straightforward and as authentic as possible. Uh, you know, sometimes we'll use a metaphor or an allegory, right? Whether it's water, sometimes that, you know, comes into play. Yeah. But, but I find that the more I try to push something, the less authentic it is, right? If it falls into place, great. But I don't have, I don't have to have those elements in order to feel like a story is a good story. Well, you usually like to end the show by asking said guest a question. And so I usually go with this and I, it's kind of been my favorite thing that's become a little, I guess a thing on the show. I don't know if you're like a avid listener. Thanks. Cause you'll know what I'm talking about, but what is something that you're proud of yourself for? Um, okay. So full disclosure, I don't believe in this concept of humble brag. Okay. So, you know, sometimes you'll see people like hashtag things like humble brag. Yeah. I, I despise it. <laughs> I think it's so damaging. It's, it goes back to this idea that like, we shouldn't be proud of things. Right. Oh. So like whatever it is that someone is proud of, let them be proud of it. If they are proud of their new Gucci hat that they saved up and purchased and are like, look at this hat that I bought. Fantastic. Like it, for you, it, um, represents hard work and determination and setting a goal and being able to see it through. Like, I feel like we're far too hard on each other when it comes to being proud. I use this example a lot, Amanda. I have small children, so it's fresh in my mind, but like my daughter is six months old. So everything she does, we celebrate. 
right? And it's innate. It's not like, uh, we're not like conscious of it. We're not like, oh, don't forget. We need to commend Kira for rolling over. She does it and you go, good job, honey. What a great job. You just rolled over. Or, you know, she doesn't spit peas all over you one night and you're, good job, honey. You ate all of your peas. But at some point it shifts where then all of a sudden these lessons that we've taught kids about being proud of every single accomplishment they're told like, hey, don't brag. Hey, be humble. Hey, you know, don't be a show off. And so it's very confusing, I think, in those developmental stages of like what you're allowed to be proud of and what you need to, you know, be more modest about. So that's my soapbox about that. Um, I'm proud of so many things. I'm proud of having a 20 plus year career in this industry that chews people up and spits them out you know, from not making any money early on to uh, being a woman in a male dominated field to having challenges every step along the way of how I'm going to pay my bills, how am I going to navigate this weird ass schedule where I'm working until midnight or sometimes beyond when I have kids? Um, you know, what family events am I going to miss? Who's going to be, who's going to forgive me for missing their wedding? Who's, who's not going to forgive me? Um, so there's a lot of things can, that can knock you off the path. So I'm really proud of that. I'm proud of the family that I've built. Um, you know, you can ask anybody, marriage is not easy. Um, you know, if you are lucky enough to be wholly compatible with your spouse, I think that that's in the minority. I think most people work through blending personalities and blending preferences and blending, you know, opinions and things like that. Um, so that's very challenging. Plus my husband's in this industry as well. So you add like the dynamic of his schedule and the demands that they're placed on him. Um, so I'm proud that like we've put the work in to be successful and we're getting better every day at it. Um, I have three kids, so I'm proud of the fact that I'm a mom, but more so just the fact that I like have birthed children, which is an accomplishment in and of itself, um, that I have good kids and that they are kind and intelligent and, um, compassionate, which is also kind, but just like they are and strong, right. And resilient. So these are all things that like, I, I, I definitely make a priority as I'm raising them. Um, and, and then, you know, personally, I'm proud of, you know, awards that I've won for stories. I'm proud of relationships that I have with some of the people and some of the families that have continued, uh, well past when the story has aired. Um, and I think I'm doing a pretty good job. Um, do I have flaws? Do I struggle in some spaces? Absolutely. But I can tell you, Amanda, that I work really hard at being better at the things that I know I'm bad at. Um, and I think that's really all you can ask of every other person that you encounter as well. And I think that's that authenticity that you keep talking about. And that's a great reminder to wherever you are, whether it's in your life or in your career, to stop and celebrate those little victories. You know, if you're struggling and you just got out of bed today, celebrate that and be proud of yourself for that. It doesn't matter how big or how little the accomplishment is. We're all doing the best we can. Yeah. And I just think it goes back to like we were talking about earlier. There's so much judgment. Um, yeah. We're seeing it now again with like the civil unrest and the, the light that's being shined on the systematic racism. You know, even people who are critical of how people are responding to it or how they are conversing about it. It's like we need to kind of give each other a break on some of those things. Um, sometimes the effort in and of itself needs to be commended. 
and acknowledging that it is not a straight line from point A to point B, that there are gonna be a lot of detours and it's more of a wiggly line and sometimes a knotted line. And um, I think as long as your journey continues to move forward, I think that's certainly something to be proud of. Learning and listening. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing a part of your story with us on the show today. It has been so fun to get to talk to you. Oh, thank you. Yes. Thank you guys for listening. For Jen Latta, I'm Amanda Smith. We'll catch you next time on How She Did It. Oh, 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 oh,